when we meditate and practice the Dharma, whether we are new, just beginning, or we're doing this since many, many years, it seems quite relevant and meaningful from time to time to reflect on what we're doing here, why we're doing it, and whether what we do is actually really purposeful. It goes in the direction we originally wanted to go. To find out if this is purposeful, we first have to look at what we really want in life. That, though, in fact, isn't too mysterious, I think, on a very basic level. Rather, it seems quite plain and obvious if we really look. We ourselves, just like all beings without exception, want to be happy and we don't want to suffer. Not at all, if possible. And everything in the world, including spirituality, everything in life follows from that. It's what we're always after all day long in all our endeavors, in all we do, in all our thoughts, speech, action, the very basic motivation. Yet when we look at how much suffering there is in life, in terms of wars and conflicts in the world, hunger, disease, social injustice, human injustice, injustice to which animals also, on all levels, looks like we haven't been very clever are successful in this endeavor to be happy, isn't it? It looks like humanity has been trying for millennia or however long we're around. Since everybody wants to be happy, why does it not work? What's the problem? This talk tonight is an attempt to look into this in some ways. Whether we like it or not, experience, life, is an ongoing, unceasing flow of pleasure and pain. Or to be more precise, it's a succession of either bliss, pleasant, neutral, unpleasant, or painful experience which arise in our sense, spheres, sensual experience, the situations we're in with people or within our mind, in thought, images, feelings, and emotions. Pleasure and pain are such a inevitable basic fact of life, the reality so unshakable 
that if you don't like it, you better find yourself another world. There's no other way. And I don't know how many better ones there are. A great deal of these experiences of pleasure and pain, which seem to be the problem in terms of our trying to be happy, they come to us packaged as what in the Buddhist tradition is called the eight worldly winds, or the eight worldly principles. And that's what I'll be talking about first. The eight worldly winds are success and failure, praise and blame, fame and notoriety or good reputation, bad reputation, and gain and loss. And uh, since Buddhists seem to like lists, I've seen different lists of these and some have health and sickness instead of um, gain and loss, some have wealth and poverty. So maybe there are really 12 wins or more, but basically they're somewhat similar. They are events that life constantly produces for us, wished for or dreaded. And like the wind, they can come suddenly, unpredictably, and from any of the eight directions, and often from opposite directions at once. So let's look at them pair by pair. <coughs> Success and failure. We can be exposed to success and failure in our profession, in our work, or in relationships, or in tests or exams. It can be in sports or competitions, games. Also, it can be in any situation at any time as soon as we set ourselves up <coughs> with expectations and hopes or as soon as we approach something with fear. As soon as we bring fixed ideas to an event. <coughs> if, for example, I go for lunch with a very fixed idea, an expectation of what it should be and how it should be, I already set myself up for failure because, you know, it might be something else. It might be better than the thing I'm fixated on, but the fact that I fix myself on something sets me up. In meditation, if I decide or believe that I should be able to stay with 50 breaths to be a good yogi, a good meditator, I'll be a failure if I only can stay with 15. If I believe that I should be able to stay with five breaths to be a good yogi, 
and I can do 15 and be such a success so it's the same feat but different expectation and immediately we're trapped in one way or the other but anyway whether we set ourselves up for it or not success and failure will happen to us over and over again in life in so many ways a few months ago I had three letters in the mail went down three letters I opened first one the letter telling me that I was done with the civil protection service I had written them a letter why it was about time for me to be done with it and they wrote back yes okay you're done so that letter had been a real success I thought wow good fantastic I opened the other letter it was from a publisher it said it didn't say that but from the figure I found my book hasn't done so well this year you know wow that's a failure huh I opened the next letter and it said um, your upcoming retreat is booked out what should we do should we ask people to te- stay in tents or I said oh wow that's wonderful you know what a success and it's so funny you know it's so interesting how they might look oh, oh, oh. within a minute or two The winds of success and failure come as they please. We don't have that much control. Then let's look at praise and blame. Suppose we knit a new sweater or we make a painting or whatever someone comes and they'll say oh what a great job it's beautiful praise another person maybe not knowing we did the knitting you know maybe thinking it's somebody else's or they might think oh gross you know some people have such bad taste it's like blame Praise and blame can take the form of feedback in other ways. It's happened that on a retreat at the same time I got two notes, more or less at the same time. One note was saying, thank you for your instructions and the sentences of inspiration and words to remind us to be present. It's so helpful and you do it so well. The other note saying, could you please shut up during the city? I really came to this retreat to be silent. Thank you. <laughs> same thing. I mean, same activity. Two different responses. It's out of control. Praise and blame. Whether, again, whether we set ourselves up for it or not, it will happen to us over and over again in life. It even happened to the Buddha, the fully enlightened one, in many different ways. Like 
Some people addressed him with great reverence. They called him awakened one, or they called him blessed one. And some other people, call, people called him shaveling, which something like skinhead. Or, you know, same person, same situation. Next is fame and notoriety or, or good reputation and bad reputation. One becomes known for certain qualities, positive or negative ones. Among a small group of people, for example, among our relatives or friends, or among a whole network of people, or in an area, or in a country, or in the whole world. And often, one's reputation is quite closely linked with one's actual qualities. But again, there's no guarantee for that, either. One hears about gurus who were held in extremely high esteem by thousands and hundreds of thousands of followers, one day it turns out they were misusing their power, abusing, and exploiting their students in many ways. Or the other way around, again, there are instances where people try to set up the Buddha in ways that were designed to destroy his reputation of saintliness and wisdom. Thank Devadatta once paid the prostitute to go up to the Buddha front of the big assembly of nuns and monks and lay people, saying, um, I'm pregnant now. Did you make preparation for me and my, uh, me and our child? And uh, I forgot how he got himself out of it. I mean, it was completely ungrounded. And I did get himself out of this. But I mean, there's, it does not necessarily depend what we do or how we are or how we act. We can have a good reputation at times or a bad one at other times or both at the same time. It's pretty much out of our control. Of course, we try in all kinds of ways. We can try things in terms of reputation even on retreat. We might fight sleepiness just because we don't want others to think that we're lousy yogis or something. Mm-hmm. You know, like we have a self-image of somebody, somebody who's really awake all the time. Mm-hmm. Or what could it be? Maybe one might sit longer because the mind is very steady, very clear, very focused, some clear comprehension, maybe insight happening, and we sit longer. Everybody leaves, sit, sit. Can also sit there, you know, because it might look good. You know, he's always sitting so long. It must be somebody. To look at our minds, why we do what we do, and all the different kind of variations of the game of, I don't mean good reputation, but just, you know, a little, look a little better. We can do it physically, and all the things we can do to ourselves to appear this way or appear that way. 
remains seven and eight, gain and loss. And this here applies predominantly to the material plane. But it can also apply to gain and loss of power, for example. Gain and loss of control. In terms of loss, just think of people like Gorbachev or Margaret Thatcher. That's such immense power. TV, news shows and newspapers talking about them daily. You know, they have a little cough or a cold, you know, they'll, all the newspapers will talk about it and <coughs> show a picture, you know. And then suddenly, almost from one day to the other, it's like totally gone. And you read every now and then you read a little notice somewhere in the newspaper saying, okay, Gorbachev is now playing in a film that is being done in Berlin or something. It's such a thorough loss of power and control and of everybody's attention. Perhaps one might speak of gain and loss also in the domains of relationship or of psychological content. It actually happens that we think in those terms even in spirituality which I don't think is very helpful at all. But anyway, here we're mostly looking at the simple fact of there being gain and loss in our life over and over again. We get things, we receive things, or we create things ourselves, or things grow, or they increase in value, or we lose things. We give away things, or destroy things, or they get destroyed, they break, or they lose their value. So in big ways or small ways, the eight winds blow at just about every moment of our life. All this seems pretty obvious and natural. Then, why do these eight winds create problems? I'm sure you must have realized that it's really all about pleasure and pain. Pleasant and unpleasant experiences, the basic two winds of this world. I mean, all of those, the whole list of twelve or more, it's really about pleasure and pain that keeps on hitting us almost every moment in different ways. And this is maybe one of the most crucial points in understanding spirituality. Because of wanting happiness and not wanting to suffer, we also want pleasant experience and not unpleasant ones. But that's where all the trouble starts. It's here that we have to learn, first of all, to distinguish between what is possible in life and what isn't. That's very basic, very important. Given the fact that we've taken hold of this body 
somehow we find ourselves with it or being it one day and given the fact that we live in this world as we know it there will be pleasant experience unpleasant experience and those in between those neutral ones and no matter what we just can't change that not even through meditation I'm sorry to say that's why you came I think you can go and ask your money back there are instances in the sutras where the Buddha asked the monk to give the talk in his place because he felt um, he needed to lie down because he had a backache he needed to lie down it doesn't mean that he was suffering in any way that his peace of mind was suffering but there was physical unpleasantness we imagine they walked through half of India those monks in those days I'm sure it wasn't always very pleasant it's a fact with this given fact understood the question then is do we also have to be happy unhappy and disinterested according to the flavor of each experience or is it possible to be at ease at peace with the mind of balance and serenity with any and all of this experience whether pleasant unpleasant or in between like the Buddha having a backache but yet being perfectly at peace and if so how can it be done what would it take I think to find out we first need to look carefully at how we relate to these experiences now how we relate to these eight winds to pleasure and pain as long as we are randomly exposed to experiences that can stop being pleasant any time and start being unpleasant any given time we will feel insecure, unsafe, uneasy, even scared and yet we so much want security, isn't it? and to get it we need control because we sense somehow if we had perfect control you know, we would be safe except that there's a little problem with that and yet we feel instinctively that not until we have a handle on things unless we are in control can we be safe and can we relax so we start looking for power and I think this issue of control and power be a whole other talk that would be very interesting but just that much the wish for security control for power and we start manipulating we start very small you know how to get some power over daddy over mommy and over all these beings around I like this quote by Ashley Brilliant from his book I have abandoned my search for truth 
He says, All I want is a warm bed and a kind word and unlimited power. <laughs> Since we believe and hope that somehow, eventually, miraculously, it will be possible to make all experience pleasant and eliminate the unpleasant ones. We spent an enormous amount of time and energy reacting, manipulating, trying to control phenomena. That's where the tragedy begins. Since it doesn't work, it never did work and it never really will. Again, even the great prophets and saints and the Buddhas have not been able to change the fact of this life in that sense, being pleasant, unpleasant and neutral at different times. So we react. And it's very worthwhile to give special attention to this in our days, in our meditation, to see how the tendency is that we react with attachment to pleasant experience, to success, to praise, to fame, to gain, to health, to wealth. We react with desire for experience that promises to be pleasant in the future, near or far. And on the other hand, there's a tendency to react with aversion, or hatred, or resistance to unpleasant, painful experience, to failure, blame, bad reputation, loss, sickness, poverty, and with fear for experience that promises to be unpleasant in the future. And we react with disinterest and yet with identification towards experience that is neutral, that is somewhere in between the two. And thus there is this almost ongoing reactivity and in balance, a commotion, a certain lack of peace within. And again, have a look in meditation. It's not the problem, it's not the unpleasant experience, or the pleasant experience, or the neutral experience. If there is a problem, it has to do with how we relate, our reaction to it. This reactivity often then also leads to all sorts of unskillful negative actions, reactions within of mind or of speech or of bodily action. And with it, all the problems, conflicts, cravings, anxieties, depressions, troubles within ourselves and around us. In short, that's how inner suffering really arises. Buddhist master said, In this world, wild and crazed elephants are incapable of causing as much suffering as the suffering and torment that can be caused by the wild elephant, which is our own mind. And it's true, the problem during the Gulf War were not the tanks and the Scud missiles and the smart bombs, with people's minds. 
minds like wild elephants in every side of the game. So what to do? The solution is simple and convincing and as you know not always very easy. It's simple but not always easy. It consists of mindfulness, of awareness and of understanding that comes out of this understanding of ourselves and of life, the law, laws of life and of equanimity with all of it. To be present right at the moment the mind reacts, mindfulness is needed. Mindfulness means being present. In fact, it's helpful to be present and aware the moment before when pleasant and unpleasant experience arises. Not only when we start to react, but more helpful if the moment unpleasantness hits or pleasantness hits, when the winds of the world hit us, we're already present. So there is some clarity already before we react with attachment or with aversion. That's why a steady and continuous mindfulness is so important, so helpful. And that's what we practice here and that's why we're practicing it here. Again, to look into that throughout the day. You know, it might be very calm for a moment. There's a noise. Not the bird, of course, birds are fine, you know, but another noise we don't like. We, in, in our mind category, goes in under unwanted noise. Maybe there's some truck pulling up or something. To see what the mind does, to really observe. Hating it, I shouldn't be here. You know, I wonder why they don't have electromobiles by now. Go on and on. <laughs> or even just the flinching. Just going through the food line. Look what happens when the salad is already done. I don't know if that ever happens here, but in some of our retreats it happens sometimes. Something is already done before we're quite there. Or it's about to go and we're <laughs> still three behind. Have a look, it's so fascinating. We're peacefully sitting and suddenly this thing in the back, you know, the one on the knee and it just starts a little. Not really, it hasn't started, it might take another ten minutes, but it starts and it's like, oh, again. Look at that. It's all those places, all those points. It's so helpful to be present. Here's a free translation of a verse by Shantideva. Even those who are well versed in the Dharma, who have faith, interest, and perseverance, will get caught 
in unwholesome actions and reactions when they are without alertness, without mindfulness. The mindfulness which we practice here can arise with every kind of experience at any given moment. I say can, it's the direction, but I used to say does or should or something. And then, you know, we're stuck with that incredible demand, you know, I should be mindful every moment of the day. So, relax. (laughs) But (laughs) it's a direction. But we don't need to measure ourselves. All we do, we need to do is to practice. And we can only do that right now, over and over again. So, it can arise with every kind of experience at any given moment. It can be with body sensations, with all the different sense experience, feelings, emotions, thoughts, and consciousness. Any moment and any time, including all events, all situations of life, including the eight worldly winds, of course. And none of that is outside meditation. None of that is not part of it. It's outside practice. It is actually where practice is really important. Now, a text says about this mindfulness, it is that which in this present moment is recollecting, calling to mind, it's a fullness of mind, bearing in mind what is, simply what is. It is the opposite of obliviousness, of unawareness, and also of superficiality. Because the quality of true mindfulness is to plunge into the object, into whatever it is with, instead of just staying on the surface, floating. It's like, not like corks that float on the water, it's more like stones that just go into. When we become superficial or mechanical in meditation, it does get boring, isn't it? That's not mindfulness. In a way, that's one of the signals saying it's not really mindful. We're sort of pretending to meditate. Mindfulness also is non-judgmental, non-biased, and not preferential. That means, and what I mean here is what is really meant by mindfulness doesn't say we're not, but mindfulness has that quality that it is, isn't Mindfulness in itself doesn't say this is good, I'll stay. This is bad, I won't stay. Attachment wants to stay, or aversion wants to go away. Mindfulness just is with what is. doesn't say this is pleasant, I'll stay. This is unpleasant, I'll leave. This is neutral, I'm bored. 
So in this sense, mindfulness is, you could call it pure, somehow immaculate, and it's an incredible, for this reason, it's an incredible clarifying and lightening force in the mind. It's the prerequisite and often the cause of insight and of understanding. What does it penetrate into? What is it causing insight into? What does it understand? It is seeing into what is and gets understanding on many different levels. Physical, bodily levels, gets mental, psychological, emotional insights, all kinds of insights into our habits, our patterns, our tendencies. We don't especially have to look for those. They sort of pop up as we go through the day. Start to see things, or see them over and over until somehow it dawns. You know, oh, that's what I'm doing. That's interesting. But more fundamentally, it is getting insight, this understanding nature of all things. Not so much how they function and patterns and tendencies and habits and all our things and trips, but the nature of all of that, of all experience, of all phenomena, of everything that makes up life. Mindfulness is seeing into the impermanence, the constant change, the fluidity of all things. The text compares life to a waterfall tumbling down over a high cliff with not a moment of hesitation, but also no chance to turn back. Do we see that? Do we sense that as we're present moment to moment with the breath that comes, the breath that goes, the next breath that comes and goes, the thought that comes and goes, this feeling or that feeling, this emotion, the joy that comes, the fear that comes. It doesn't matter what the content is. That is almost like it's, it's constant. It comes and goes and comes and goes. It arises and it's already gone. The next arises and it's gone. That's what mindfulness sees into. It also sees into the unsatisfactory nature of all things. In the fact that though we need things and they have the power to satisfy that need for that moment, there's nothing that provides a satisfaction that's going to last that's going to make it, that's going to be it. Not even the new relationship, or the new job, or the new house, or the new car. And also not the next meditation. You know how we're waiting for the meditation is just going to do it. We know, I'm not saying, you know, we really believe that. But somehow, you know, it might happen one day, isn't it? And we see, since it doesn't last, it can't do that for us. 
I always have a sense that this is probably the main reason why we're here. And it might have been what got us to spiritual practice before we ever were really consciously aware of it. That sense of incompletion, of something lacking, that's what it is. It's because things physically or mentally or emotionally on every level don't make it somehow. And mindfulness experiences that clearly over and over and realizes, oh. Mindfulness also sees the emptiness or transparency maybe. I don't like so much the word emptiness anymore lately because people keep on telling me they have just this empty experience or something. The transparency of things or maybe the ingraspability of all things. Maybe I could call it that. Looking at what we're made up of, a text says, physical forms are like balls of foam. Feelings are like bubbles. Perceptions resemble mirages. All the volitional and mental factors are like banana tree trunks, and I think they're hollow. And consciousnesses resemble magical illusions. And that's what is displaying itself over and over and over again. Beyond that, there isn't something or somebody else. There's not someone me, you know, back up here or in here somewhere, who, who runs the show, you know, who has the controls. It's more as Guy Claxton puts it. The lights are on, but there's nobody home. It's like the TV's on and the radio's on and the stereo's on and there's all this show going on. There's no one there. And if all we are is this composition, or conglomerate, or this symphony, if you prefer, of ever-changing elements of body, mind, feelings, emotions, if life is this ever-changing, endlessly moving, and transforming dance, then the reactiveness of holding on and pushing away that attachment and aversion over and over again, it just doesn't make sense. And it's, we know that intellectually anyway, but it, we somehow get it deeper and deeper over and over, that message. That doesn't make sense. Mindfulness is seeing, intimately seeing, sensing, and realizing that. And I don't think we need to think it's realizing it once and for all. It's realizing it over and over again, and in a more in a deeper and deeper way, somehow. <coughs> it realizes that holding on attachment to what is fluid, ingraspable, must create suffering. It realizes that pushing away aversion to what's out of control, that to what's, what follows its own loss, it must create suffering. 
And seeing that deeply, it accepts. There's acceptance. Seeing that deeply, it lets go. There's letting go. There's acceptance of what is right now, and it lets go of what isn't, or what is about to go away and cannot be held on to. And it's in this way that equanimity is born. I'd like to read this from Lao Tzu. Do you want to improve things? I don't think it can be done. The world is sacred. It can be improved. If you tamper with it, you'll ruin it. If you treat it like an object, you'll lose it. The master sees things as they are, without trying to control them. She lets them go their own way and resides at the center of the circle. Equanimity is that quality of mind that is willing and able to be present with unpleasantness, with pain, and stays in balance, remains unfazed, unperturbed, keeps its serenity, its peace. Deep, profound inner acceptance is equanimity. And in that sense, it is also really kindness, gentleness, love. Equanimity is the quality of mind that stays present with pleasantness, with bliss, without holding on to, without attachment. It's really there for it. It enjoys it, but without grasping and clinging. And it keeps its serenity, its balance, peace, deep letting go is equanimity, and thus, in a way, it's really natural renunciation and generosity. Equanimity also stays present with neutral experience, and yet it is fundamentally opposite of indifference and of carelessness because it is sensitive and it is intelligent and it is free not dull and no matter which wind blows whether it's gain or loss or success or failure or praise or blame good or bad reputation pleasure or pain. There's enough space within to hold it all. There's enough softness and gentleness to stay peaceful. There's enough equanimity to keep the balance. As Duchem Rinpoche says, we will be like the vast open sky 
not particularly flattered by the rainbow, not particularly upset by the rain, clouds, and storms. Now I think it's important for us also to remember that, of course, we will fall out of balance, and we will hold on, and we will resist, and we will dislike things, and like things. To not then sort of measure that against the standard of the equanimity which we should have, but to remember that all we need to do is make the space even a bit wider and include the fact that there's also reactivity going on since we are who we are. And that is okay too. So we're aware of that. And we look and we say, oh, how interesting. I'm so angry. And that doesn't need to be a problem, even though in that moment actually how it is, you know. I'm pissed. We don't need to act on it. We don't need to suppress it. It's there and it might be intense. And again, it still doesn't need to be a problem. So to see equanimity in that wider sense gentleness or a softness that is wide enough that sometimes when we're not soft but really tight, it's okay, you know, this is tightness, fine. An okayness that is big enough in those moments when we think that is not okay at all. It's okay, (laughs) not okay at all this time, it's a big deal. So to include our reactiveness too, rather than to set up a new model and a new demand on how saintly or how perfect we should be. And then it gets easy and light. In the deepest sense, equanimity is really born from the understanding of emptiness of self, of transparency, of ingraspability of things. And at this point, normally, I would have read the empty boat story by Chuang Tzu. I just found out (laughs) that Christina read it yesterday. I think you remember the essence. When we realize and that might be just for fleeting moments, but when we get a sense that our boat is empty, we'll also stop causing so much harm to ourselves and others. We'll stop swearing and shouting so much, as it says in the poem. And also, there isn't so much someone there to be harmed either by others or by oneself. So again, things get so much lighter. Once we let go, or whenever we let go, with equanimity, life is as it is. It's very rich and very full, and yet light, easy. Said the Zen monk, When my house burned down, I got an unobstructed view 
of the moon at night. She too. Oh. She didn't tell me that one. <laughs> so whether we see more clearly whether freedom manifests or not, whether we deepen in equanimity, it all depends on our being mindful, our being present as acutely and as continuously as we can, not more than we can, okay? As much as we can, that's just fine. It depends on us doing that with care and with gentleness, with kindness. That part we actually must do. That part is up to us. And I'd like to close with Deva. Therefore I shall put this way of life into actual practice for what can be achieved by merely talking about it. Will a sick person be benefited merely by reading the medical texts? That's up to us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.